Hey, thank you everyone for coming today and thank you especially to Rada, Frank um, for the introducing remarks and also to the panelists that we have here today. Um, the goal of this presentation um, today is to give you a broad overview of um, uh, work review that we've done on um, uh, together with, with Nelly Moore, Zara Nyazi and Rebecca Rose, who is here today as well, um, on how financial inclusion can help build resilience. Um, I think this publication should be available in hard copy form outside. And uh, for those online, um, we will also be sharing links to the publication in your chat box. Um, of course, in, in 12 minutes, it's difficult to give you a full review of the existing evidence and knowledge gaps that are there in this space. And so I won't be able to fully merit all research um, that is there. But I hope to share with you at least some of the highlights, um, examples, and, and key messages from the review that we've done. And we'd like to invite you um, during the Q&A, during the panel discussion, to give your views on what the research priorities and really the research gaps are. So in this review, um, we focus on four channels through which financial inclusion can build resilience. Um, in there, it's perhaps a little bit of a no-brainer that financial instruments can help responding to shocks once a shock actually occurs. Um, but that's not the only thing. It's really important to also think about how financial instruments, such as insurance, credit, and savings, um, can help already build resilience before a shock. And actually, that's where most of the action um, and most of what I'll be presenting today is focused on. So a first thing that we really want to convey as a key message is that financial tools can help build resilience by improving investments um, in profitable but risky opportunities uh, in the face of risk um, already before a shock. Um, and so by investing, by improving investments, um, households can improve their incomes and reduce or, or grow out of the poverty that is making them vulnerable to the shocks in the first place. So encouraging investments in these profitable opportunities um, is really a key thing that, that we can accomplish with financial inclusion. Second, there's investments in risk reduction. Financial inclusion can help um, I, um, promote or encourage investments in strategies that can help households mitigate the risk. So that's the second area that we've looked at in the review. And then finally, um, before the shock, there's risk preparedness, building precautionary savings that can help households um, cope once a shock occurs, um, cope with those shocks. But again, I want to highlight the point that it's really about, it's not just about resilience and financial inclusion, it's not just about responding to shocks or risk preparedness, it's also about investments um, in profitable opportunities that improve incomes and about investments in risk reduction. So let me start with the first theme, investment, uh, increasing investment in the face of risk. Um, there are several trials that are looking at weather index insurance. Um, these trials have been done by colleagues from IPA, um, by us here at IFPRI, in which we're finding that index insurance can, and you see that word can in both, in, in index insurance can lead to higher investments in agriculture by reducing exposure to risk. Um, now, there's, there's one big, big challenge in index insurance, and that is that demand typically remains low. So for instance, in the Ghana and India studies that you see listed on this slide, um, when offered at market prices, 
them, only 10 to 20% of farmers offered the product were purchasing the product um, and when offered at a 50% subsidy. Um, even then, less, fewer than 50% of farmers were purchasing products. So low demand is really a critical challenge that needs to be addressed for these products to be more sustainable. Now, a lot of research that we've done has focused on why does re demand remain low. Um, and two key factors are trust and basis risk. Um, basis risk means that a farmer may suffer damage, but the insurance does not trigger any payouts. And here you see an example of how this could happen. For instance, um, we have the weather station here. Is this working? Yeah, we have the weather station here. Um, but the farmer is actually based on the other side of the hill, and so the weather station is um, is, is, is is detecting rainfall and is saying, okay, there's no drought. This farmer shouldn't be getting a payout. And so this farmer, who may have suffered damage from a drought, will think twice before purchasing insurance again, of course, because the moment that this farmer wanted to receive a payout, no payout was triggered. Um, so open questions in this space is, can, are there innovations that can help reduce this basis risk, that can improve the correlation between insurance payouts and what farmers actually losses that farmers experience on the ground, and in turn, can better quality insurance products then improve demand for these products and improve the impacts that products have on risk-taking investments? Um, and so when we're, for instance, looking at the satellite imagery, um, use of drones, but also an initiative here at IFPRI that is funded by our PIM research program um, that is using ground pictures for farmers to kind of build the evidence themselves of whether or not they have losses. And so tracking their crops using ground pictures, which is what we call the picture-based insurance initiative. So we find encouraging results there in that it indeed does reduce basis risk and improves demand, but this is research and work in progress, and a lot more research, rigorous research is needed in this space. Okay, then we've talked about formal insurance, um, but when it comes to promoting, encouraging investments in these profitable opportunities, we also want to look beyond insurance. Um, and particularly, there's evidence showing that informal insurance in the form of improved savings, which provides self-insurance, um, are also digital payments, which promote um, or make it easier for people to transact money to people who are in need. These forms of informal insurance have actually been to, shown to also encourage risk-taking behavior and investments. Um, and so, without going into too much detail in the interest of time, um, we want to stress here that informal insurance and formal insurance are not necessarily competing with one another. Sometimes having proper informal insurance mechanisms in place is a prerequisite for formal insurance to work or the other way around. And we can talk more about that in the panel. Um, so an open question that I wanted to flag here particularly is how financial products um, can actually nudge consumers towards truly profitable investments. So what we see in the work on, on that is looking at financial inclusion effects on investments, we often see changes in behavior. We often see that, that clients that are increasing their financial inclusion due to programs, policies, they, they are changing their investment behavior. But it often doesn't lead to improvements in profitability. We often don't see effects on, on profits that these consumers are making. And so that is raising the question, um, is there something missing? 
And one of the things that we're testing is, is in combination with agricultural insurance is providing information on how to invest, um, providing advisories and extra training, is that perhaps a missing link? Is that strengthening the impacts? Um, or looking at can we link producers to more profitable marketing channels in order to improve the impacts of the financial products themselves? So that's an open question I wanted to flag here. Then moving to strategies for risk reduction. Um, here's an example of a study in Kenya where they provided loans um, that were collateralized based on a water tank. And this was shown to increase the demand for water tanks as a, as a risk-reducing strategy. So improved access to credit was unlocking demand for a risk-reducing strategy. Um, an example, another example in Kenya, whereby um, lockboxes as a soft commitment device were encouraging people to save for preventive health products. And finally, an example in India, where residue burning is considered a big issue, an environmental problem, but also improving residue management is a way to reduce risk to weather risk exposure, to, to reduce weather risk exposure. And what we find is conditioning insurance premium subsidies on farmers not burning their residues um, has an impact, an effect on their behavior. But again, open questions. Um, what are ultimately, so the last point here on the slide, what are ultimately the impacts of these risk mitigating investments on the experience of shocks and on household resilience? And some of these other questions we can talk about later and during the panel. Okay, so then we come to facilitating preparedness for shocks. So that last um, strategy or channel through which financial inclusion can help build resilience that happens before shock. Um, there's evidence showing that account liquidity, access to funds, labeling to emergencies and also savings groups, um, that these are all channels or mechanisms to encourage savings for a rainy day um, so that households have access to emergency savings when, when, needed, when they need the funds. Um, a big question here is the trade-off between having access to the funds quickly and being able to commit yourself and others to not using those savings um, for things that are really not maybe the priority um, in the longer term. So balancing control versus control over the funds versus access to the funds quickly in an emergency is a key question um, in, in, in that we have identified in the, re in the research here. Then we come to responding when a shock hits. So the only thing that really happens after a shock in, in, in our review. Um, a first, a first um, a type of intervention has focused on person-to-person -person money transfers. And so we see that lowering transaction fees, for instance, facilitated by the introduction of mobile money, um, encourages risk sharing. And so we see that households in Kenya, for instance, as mobile money was expanding, were better able to cope with a, a, a series of shocks. Um, now, the question here is migrants who are remitting those transfers and helping families at home, um, are they overtaxed? Because they are the ones who are now taking on the burden for the, um, the shocks that are happening at home. Um, and this is raising the question how to tailor um, financial products for economic migrants and also forcibly displaced, which are very different segments of the market than the typical consumer that most financial institutions will have in mind when they are designing their financial products. 
Um, we've also looked at interventions of government transfers. So, for instance, Jenny Aker has work showing that digital transfers make it a lot easier for beneficiaries to access and also safer for them to access the funds. Um, and then there's consumer credit. This is often considered risky by micro microfinance providers, um, but often preferable to other costly coping strategies, for instance, cutting meals or selling productive assets that make um, that, that puts future income generating potential um, at risk. So questions there are when is this the appropriate resilience strategy? So here, in a summary, kind of the four channels again, um, and a quick summary. And then to conclude, we wanted to, um, to, to, do, to make a call for action um, for pu private public partnerships to really build the evidence and to encourage innovation and scale promising solutions in this area. And for that, we have this seminar because we'd like to hear your views, those of our panelists, those of you today here in the audience on what do you see as the key research priorities that these private public partnerships um, should be focusing on. And with that, I'd like to conclude. Thank you so much.